Welcome back and welcome to our storytelling interview. We call it an interview, but it's really more of a conversation. My name is David Frainer and I'm here with Beth Penner. And I want to begin, Beth, by thanking you for agreeing to be part of our conversation about stories and storytelling. And especially want to thank you and indeed all of our tellers for this evening's incredible, incredible stories. It was just a marvelous, marvelous evening so far. I appreciate the courage it took to tell your story and your willingness to take the risk to be open, to be vulnerable, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But your story reminds me, as all of tonight's stories do, that true personal strength comes not so much from our victories, but from our vulnerabilities. The willingness to be vulnerable on behalf of a larger good I think represents a kind of a strength of character, Beth, I would say, a strength of character that, frankly, we don't see around our culture that much these days, but a strength of character that holds within it the possibility of personal and community-wide transformation. And that's an important part of why we here at True Tales Live do what we do. And that's the end of my sermon. Oh, I'm a retired Unitarian Justice <laughs> Minister, so you... You can't stop that. But it brings me to my first question for tonight, Beth. Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey. And I wonder if you would share with us something about your own personal process that led you to telling us your first story here tonight. Uh, well, the talking about vulnerability is, a, is, a, is really at the heart of it. I think right. for me, as we, you were mentioning in the introduction, in my professional work, I often are, am in front of groups and giving speeches or facilitating workshops. And so there's kind of a professional Beth Tenor that I'm quite comfortable in. And she served me well. <laughs> <laughs> and the story of what happened with me and Rick was so profound. Uh, and I ended up writing as a memoir about right. it in the second year after he died. I kind of journaled through the whole thing as part of my really? process to cope. Um, and a lot right after he died as part of my grieving. And then I, wow. and I had lots of journals. So I, the second year after he died, I wrote a whole memoir. And it was part of my grieving. I would write a chapter at my computer and I'd finish and the floor would be full of Kleenex. And <laughs> I mean, that would be it for the day. So... I wrote that whole thing and then I put it on a shelf because it was, I think, too vulnerable, too close to the heart to be ready to share it to the world. And then in just in the last year, several people who've become close friends who are newer in my life, when I told them the whole story of me and Rick, they were like, I had no idea that you went through that, like, because we could see the professional Beth. And several different independent people, three of them all said the same thing, like, you got to share that story. You know, and kind of as part of that in my growing up of share more of you in the world. So that this was a big step for me to share such no a kidding. story. You, yeah. you journaled every day, yeah. once a week, more frequently. If you frequently. know um, The Artist's Way with Julia yes, Cameron, slightly. she has this yes. idea of morning pages morning where you page. get up and just write. And I ended up calling them morning, M-O-U-R-N, <laughs> morning pages. But I wow. was in that habit for quite a few years. Uh, even before I met Rick, and then all through the years, it was kind of my way to process in the morning, and um, and I just did. It just was my habit, and so I I would just put them in a drawer by my desk, by my bed, and so I had stacks. So when I went to write 
the memoir and then from there to write this story, I could go right back to the, the words I wrote in the moment, which are often so, you know, we find words, that's part of what we're trying to do is find words for the range of emotions or what happened. So it's a wonderful record to then draw from, you know, to tell a story in the present. There's a Harvard psychologist whose name escapes me, but he wrote a wonderful book called Habits of the Heart. And in effect, your morning pages were a kind of habit of the heart yeah. that, that you had developed long enough in mm -hmm. advance of Rick's disease and, and dying yeah. process that it sustained you through yes. that process. Is, it was that quite helpful. That's say? right. Yeah. Now, have you published the memoir? Are you no. going to? Is no. I am now in the process of getting ready to do that. So it's, uh, it's literally, I put it on a shelf when I finished it. And I did a little bit of looking into should I publish it. And at that point, honestly, it was still too raw and tender to have people talk about this story because it was still so uh, close to the heart. And then I, life got busy. So, I haven't, <laughs> so I'm really kind of coming back now to looking at publishing it. Yeah. Are you going to do a rewrite of it? Is it? Well, I found a... I've found someone locally who helps coach writers on getting published, so I'm going to start working with him and see what it, see what it needs. I'm too close to it to right, know right, where it right. stands. Yeah. What's wow. needed. Yeah. yeah. Holy cow. That's amazing. So uh, perhaps we can talk a little bit about the story, the process of moving into telling this story at mm -hmm. this time. I mean, I understand what you've gone through, but storytelling is brings its own set of challenges. Yeah. As you say, it's not yeah. the professional Beth or the professional David when I tell a story. Mm -hmm. I'm right there in the moment. and yeah. wonder if I'm going to make it or go off the deep end or mm -hmm. something in between. So what was the process like for deciding to... How did you get yourself into being able to tell this story? I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, well, I wanted to convey some of what made Rick so special and what I felt uh, part of how he loved me helped me grow more into who I was and became. And I feel there's a really particular quality of that that's not always common. Uh, so I wanted to convey some of that. And the theme of I see you, I felt like the times at the end of his life where particularly that story with the wheelchair the courage he witnessed, but then me seeing and noting it at the time felt so profound and important. So not only did he do it, but the moment where I actually said, I see you, it was, it was one of the most special moments for us. And so I, I felt that story was probably one of the ones I wanted to tell. Um, but the challenge was, how do you go from just meeting through all these years into the sad part in eight minutes, eight or ten minutes? But... And then the story at the end in the hospital, I felt really tied it together uh, with the way he, what his final words were about what love means and how we have to tell each other. So what was interesting was to think back to when we were first meeting and how I had that impulse to say I love you. And like, I didn't really put it together till later what a bookend that was on what he eventually, his final words to us were. Yeah. Did you have a memorial service for him? We did. We actually had uh, three. <laughs> we, had a, <laughs> we had a small one at the house the night he died. We had a beautiful one with about 25 close friends and family, a circle really. And then we had a large one a week later uh, 
with over 200 people. And at that one, I got up, I don't know how I did it that week, uh, but I got up and told the story about the wheelchair part. Really? Yeah. Really? I did. And, it and, was, and how in the world did you do I don't that? know. You can ask my family here. But it was what I experienced at the end of life with him was we were so supported by friends and family. It was, like, I talked about an hourglass here, but it was like this crucible that the love intensified so much. And I had been caretaking. So I think I was in just a, this vigilance as well as, you know, circles of people praying for us. So all I can say is that something gave me tremendous strength in those weeks. And I, I was able, I wanted to convey to the people there, like the strength he showed even through his debilitating illness that, you know, he had such a life force. So many people were shocked that it could take him down and he was only 48. Uh, so it felt important for me to share that story about love overcoming fear. Yeah. I asked about having a memorial service for him because I think from my own perspective as a Unitarian Universalist minister, the critical thing that we do with memorial services is to share intimate stories. Mm -hmm. And in effect, um, I regard storytelling as a kind of spiritual practice. Uh, it may sound sort of strange to say it, but I really enjoy doing weddings and memorial services uh, for two very re different reasons. And I think sometimes people feel like, you want to do a memorial service? And the answer is absolutely, because it's that moment when people can somehow overcome the kinds of boundaries that normally divide us and really connect with one another around uh, usually an unfortunate or tragic event. But nonetheless, it enables yeah. us to deepen our connection with one another, and that's exactly what I think you did. Absolutely. And the, the story, the gathering of 25 people, I, I felt a change in my being but between the beginning and the end of it, that way that ritual can really move us. And we, we had a talking piece, and people just told stories of Rick. And mm. what I experienced in that is because everyone had their own experience of him, and it was like each person had a facet, like a multi, you know, a gem, and as the stories kept getting told, we all got a much fuller sense of him. And one of my favorites with my sister, who's here tonight, he, she and Rick became good friends. And she told this story there and at the big funeral about how every time you get on the phone with Rick, he'd, you'd pick up and he'd go, Sharon Tenor, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> And everybody who knew him started laughing because they're like, he did that to me. I thought that was my special thing with Rick. <laughs> so there's this way that through the storytelling, uh, and, and you're right, I think people are so honest and they're trying to capture the essence of this person. Like he, his, we, we coalesced him in a sense. Yes. And then the yeah. part I loved at the smaller service, we had a bowl with floating candles and we asked each person to name a quality of Rick that they valued, that they want to then go embody in their own lives and put a candle in the water. Oh, wow. It was really beautiful. Yeah. 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 So he can live on in us. Yeah. Yeah, it is a form of spiritual practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. In community. Yep. You know? Yeah. And it binds us together in community in ways that we may not originally have expected. I had a friend, uh, older friend of mine and my wife's 
Mary Gilday, who died some years ago, and the family didn't want to have a formal memorial service. But we had an informal one out at Newcastle, mm. uh, gathered around some picnic tables, and I sort of was informally the conductor of the service. And it was very similar. People were, kind of went around the picnic mm-hmm. tables, and each person had a little piece of Mary Gilday's story that yeah. they shared. And it was just, and it was at Newcastle, and the weather was gorgeous, fall day. And uh, I was reminded of that as you were speaking. There, mm-hmm. there is something remarkable. Um, people don't generally know this, but the word liturgy from the Greek means work of the people. Mm. And people often think of liturgy if they come from very traditional religious backgrounds as sort of ritualistic. Yeah. And that's a misunderstanding. Liturgy is the work of the people. And when people gather in memorial times like that, that's exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's shift gears a little bit here. And uh, I assume that in your consulting work, you also use storytelling, even if you're the professional, yes, Beth, and not I just do. the one on the True Tales mm-hmm. live stage. Um, how, has storytelling informed your work, and if so, how? Absolutely. A lot of the work I do is working uh, on, say, a cause like climate change or getting lo- more local food into schools. And we'll often be working where we have lots of different organizations who are working in the, on the same cause, but they don't talk to each other. So my work's about how do we design spaces where a lot of those people can connect and find common purpose and figure out how to align their work. And so I always start with stories and small groups. So I get them like in groups of four, and I say, talk to each other about a time that something went really well in your work or a way that communities collaborated before. And I love this quote from Margaret Wheatley. She says, a story is the shortest distance between two people. <laughs> so if, if you start them that. talking with stories and then say, what were the common themes? And then, but you just watch their faces and two to four people, it's magic. And it warms the room up. It starts building trust. And so I use it all the time. In every meeting I do, I use story. Yeah. Well, um, I know earlier in your career you worked in the field of sustainability specifically, mm-hmm. and our own Amy Antonucci yes. uh, is also works in that has worked in that field and has a permaculture farm. And uh, thinking about those things got me to thinking that um, we live in a time of sort of rampant consumerism, and I had the feeling that or the belief that one of the things we really need to do is tell stories of connection of, that mm-hmm. unify us in some ways and that give us a new way of looking at sustainability and telling cultural and societal stories that are on the side of sustaining ourselves into the future rather than mm-hmm. eating our way into the future, assuming our way yeah. into the future. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I quite agree. I think there's a lot of people talking about the need for a new story. I mean, we have, Absolutely. you know, our culture is based on stories. So we have the American dream and, you know, the, uh, the story of survival of the fittest and climb the ladder to the top. So I think we're really in this time of needing to recreate a sense of a different story uh, and that one that can activate us and allow us to find common purpose. Um, so some of the examples from the work I do, um, people are talking about this transition in, time, in terms of climate change and how do right. we transition yep. to yep. a fossil-free <laughs> uh, future. 
but do that in a way that's also about justice and you know so and holistic holistic yeah and so this seeking of new narratives that can also i think one of the real challenges right now and it's certainly true in sustainability and environmental stuff is it's really heavy and guilt inducing and it's easy to kind of look at what we're doing and say humans are awful as opposed to humans are part of the web Uh, and i've really admired robin wall kimmerer's book uh, braiding sweetgrass And she talks with her students, uh, she has Native American origins uh, background, but she'll ask her grad students, like, do you you love the earth? And they'll say, oh, yeah. And then she says, does the earth love you? And they kind of (laughs) pause. So for me, there's some part of the emergent story that I'm really drawn to, which also relates to why I'm feeling the need to tell this love story in a sense, is that there's got to be a way love's in the story not just guilt, not just we're harming or we're terrible humans or we're greedy, but like where does the love fit in and where do we fit back in belonging with community and with the earth? Yeah. Well said. Thank you. We're coming towards the end. So the last question here is, as a first-time, first-person storyteller, if there are newbies out there who might be thinking about this, advice that you would have to give to them or Hmm. thoughts that you would have to share in terms of the art and craft of storytelling for a storyteller? Well, I'm glad the first time is done. (laughs) From now on, I will no longer be a first. Right, get over it. um, Well, what I did was come to the class that Amy and Pat taught, and and there was about eight or ten people, and so I took, I brought a first draft to that class, and when I stood up and shared it, my knees were knocking. <laughs> I was so nervous. Yeah, but you did a great job. But I was, and not as nervous tonight, which was good. But um, so I got feedback from everybody, and it's a very safe, helpful environment. People were really positive. And so I found that super helpful. And I listen to the moth all the time, so I, you know, I listen to stories. Um, but then to write it out and practice it with a lot of different people uh, was also helpful. And I really appreciate that you allow us to use, you know, to have the notes because for me that made it more, as a first-time person, it more bearable. <laughs> uh, so it was a really nicely structured, supportive way oh, to good, get started. Good, good, good. Was my experience. <clears throat> yeah. Amy Antonucci is not only one of the producers, but she also is a storyteller, mm-hmm. and she's—I think she's terrific—and she almost always has notes. Mm-hmm. But I think. Sometimes for her, and I think this may be true for a lot of us, uh, myself included, the notes are sort of like Linus's blanket. Mm-hmm. It's not that we really need to read them, and I didn't sense that you were doing that, but Mm-mm. they're there yeah. just to kind of provide a little bit of a safety net, mm-hmm. which is why we like to go in this just that direction. Well, this brings us to the end of our conversation with Beth Tenner. I want to thank you for sharing your first person, you. first time story here with us. And it brings us to the end of our program. Our thanks to the PPM TV producers and staff and our own True Tales Live production crew, Amy Antonucci, Steve Koval, John Lovering, and the soon to be fully recovered, we hope, Pat Spaulding. Thank you to each and every one of our tellers. What an evening. And thank you to our audience. As I've said before, storytelling has the power to create and sustain a sense of community. And at the same time, in order for the magic of storytelling to work, it takes not just great tellers, but a terrific audience. 
thank you for those of you who've been here and who are listening to us or watching on the PPM TV. Our next show is Tuesday, April 30th on the theme of baby steps. Our next free workshop will be the day after April Fool's Day, April 2nd from 7.30 to 9 here at PPM TV. If you are considering telling a story, we encourage you to attend one of our workshops. They're great for newbies and experienced tellers, as best can attend to. (laughs) And you can sign up at truetaleslivenh1.org. My name is David Frainer. For our entire True Tales Live staff and crew, thank you and good night. Thank you so much. You were great. Thank you. Yeah, I, I sort of see storytelling. I-